Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 217th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and this episode is brought to you by Showtime. Academy Award nominee Benedict Cumberbatch stars in the new Showtime limited event series, Patrick Melrose. In this tour de force performance, Cumberbatch brings to life the story of one man's journey toward redemption and survival. Patrick Melrose, now streaming only on Showtime. My guest today is a 31-year-old actress of immense talent and beauty who rocketed from anonymity to superstardom seven years ago as one of the principal characters on a new show that quickly became, by most measures, the biggest and best on television. HBO's Game of Thrones. On it, she plays Daenerys Stormborn of House Targaryen, rightful heir to the Iron Throne, rightful queen of the Andals and the First Men, protector of the Seven Kingdoms, the mother of dragons, the Khaleesi of the Great Grass Sea, the Unburnt, the Breaker of Chains. In short, one of the most fascinating and beloved characters in TV history. I'm talking, of course, about the fantastic Amelia Clark. HBO has released seven seasons of Game of Thrones thus far, and the show's ratings have grown with each peaking with the season 7 finale last August 27th, which was watched by some 12 million people. An eighth and final season of the show, which will resolve many long-lingering questions, is being shot now and will hit the service in 2019. Over the course of Game of Thrones' run, Clark's life has changed entirely. She received Best Supporting Actress in a Drama Series Emmy nominations in 2013, 2015, and 2016, and Critics' Choice nominations in 2013 and 2016, She was named the sexiest woman alive by Esquire in 2015. She became so famous and developed a fan base so passionate that more than a few people got her face tattooed on their bodies and named their children after her or her character. And she spent her hiatuses acting in other media, starring in Breakfast at Tiffany's on Broadway in 2013, and in movies like 2015's Terminator Genesis, 2016's Me Before You, and a little one coming out on May 25th that you may have heard of, called Solo, A Star Wars Story. She and I touch on all of this, plus much more. But first, I was joined at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter by our executive editor for features, Stephen Galloway, who recently wrote a fascinating article that appeared in our magazine and is now available online, entitled, What's Behind the Upheaval Among Hollywood Publicists? Stephen, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So first, I think maybe some basics, just for anyone who's listening and doesn't necessarily fully understand what a publicist does or how publicists make the world go around here in Hollywood. Can you just give a little overview of that? There are many different types of publicists. There are publicists who work for corporations, ones who deal with government issues, for instance. But there is a particular breed of publicist who is, as it were, the middleman between journalists and celebrities. And they're incredibly important. All of us deal with them a lot of the time. We have relationships with them, sometimes friendly, sometimes <laughs> adversarial. Right. And there's a give and take. You know, sometimes they want their clients in magazines, so they're pitching us. And sometimes we want their clients and we're pitching them. And 
many of these are extraordinarily important gatekeepers to major names. There's what I call defensive publicity, which is those who represent the superstars like Jennifer Lawrence, where they don't have to pitch, they can choose. Mm-hmm. And then there are the offensive publicists who have less known clients that need space. If you're a client, you better know who you are and what you need because <laughs> different PR people have different skills. Mm-hmm. There are those who are good at dealing with individuals and there are those who are really good at strategy. By the way, in the Academy Awards campaigns, the strategy can make a great deal of difference. And I was just going to quickly interject that there are really within the world of Hollywood publicists, different denominations. The personal is who I think we'll be talking about mostly today, but also studio publicists, film unit publicists, awards publicists or strategists, consultants. That's interchangeable, but it is a, a huge number of them here in town and in New York. Yeah, and and their role has grown in importance as the media and different outlets have grown, but it's also changed. If you go back, you and I both love Hollywood history, mm-hmm. to people like Howard Strickling, mm-hmm. they not only controlled access, but they invented stories. Oh, yeah. If you're doing any research on things back there, you find all sorts of things completely made up. They would mask the sexual inclinations of their stars. They would cover up murders on occasion, mm-hmm. deaths. Mm-hmm. They did incredible things. The biggest transformation in the modern era was the arrival of Pat Kingsley. Mm-hmm. Who you also profiled in the magazine a few years ago. People can find that on Google. Yeah, the only profile she's done in, I think, mm-hmm. 20 years. Mm-hmm. Pat was the head of a company called PMK and was the dominant publicist in the way that in the 80s and 90s, Mike Ovitz was the dominant agent who changed the nature of the business. She controlled so many stars that she could not only decide what they did and where they went, but who interviewed them for how long. And what that meant was, if you wanted to write a piece that was a bit critical, a bit skeptical, you were effectively banned. Mm -hmm. So it encouraged a kind of soft writing about celebrities that I don't think has completely gone away. Mm-hmm. When I talk to friends of mine who wrote about public figures in the 70s and 80s, they often had great access. They'd often spend a week with a, a person and then write what they wanted with no fear of retaliation. That vanished. And some magazines thrived on their relationships with Pat. Vanity Fair in particular became very celebrity driven became the place to go to, and some writers became the favorite writers. But along with that came a softening of entertainment journalism. Pat retired a few years ago, and I think we're seeing the effects of her retirement as PMK lost its dominance as really the sole place in the way that CAA was the sole place for stars. And a number of others filled in that gap. So one question is how that has affected journalism, but the other is how it's affected the publicists themselves. What you saw was the consolidation of power that's now been loosened, and particularly in the past four or five years, where there have been offshoots from the dominant PR companies. There's one other thing that I think would be helpful to set up before we talk about really what the catalyst for your article, which was this last four or five years, this upheaval, as you've called it, publicists don't necessarily make that much money relative to the other people who babysit talent like agents and managers. Can you just explain 
the different ways that pay is allocated for those jobs and why publicists who I think work as hard and face as many demands as any agent or manager, how this came to be and why they don't just band together and strike or whatever, because the truth is they are the people that make this town go around as much as anybody. It's pretty shocking. There's been a tradition from the beginning of Hollywood that agents take 10%, mm-hmm. managers take 10 or 15%, lawyers take up to 5%. Publicists don't get a percentage. So what that means is the more successful their clients and the more work they're creating for the publicist, there's no correlation between that and what they earn. And I think it's pretty shocking. And they should band together and they would band together if there weren't this dissolution in their business. Where they feel tensions amongst themselves. Right. Also, I wonder if it it may be to some extent, since we've spent most of the last year talking about gender challenges that Hollywood has faced. I mean, publicity, I think it's fair to say, is still a female dominated and always has been. Maybe not always, because at the beginning it was the Rogers and Cowans and people of the world. But it is today a very female heavy profession. And I just wonder if that maybe it just started out with some inequality in terms of pay or or assumptions. That's a great question. I think you're dead right. It has been harder for women to get equal pay. And 80 or 90% of the celebrity publicists are women. Mm -hmm. So yes, that plays a role. But, But I think even more today is the fracturing of their business, which makes it very difficult for them to stand together and say, we are all going to institute a percentage. The other thing is many of them lose their clients for a while when the clients aren't working, where they go on hiatus. But the truth is if you or I need to get information, whether the person is on hiatus or not, we still make the phone call and the publicist still does the work. Right. And it is kind of crazy that these hiatuses happen often with top, top stars from what I've been different stories I've been told where it's changing the couch for a lot of these people and yet they just... No they, one wants to get rid of money they don't have I to. I guess not. But but let's not exaggerate. High-level publicists are still earning hundreds of thousands of dollars mm-hmm. a year. Mm-hmm. Where they make more is if where they're the owners of their companies, like Leslie Dart or Mera Buxbaum and, and Kelly Bush. They own companies that represent hundreds of clients. Including corporate clients more recently. And now the corporate companies, the corporations are paying a lot more. Yeah. Well, that sets us up nicely to talk about the fact that there are these giant institutions in in town. Rogers and Cowan was probably the first big one in in the business, but now there are ID, PMK, BNC, Slate, 42 West, BWR, WKT, on and on and on. And what's happened over these last few years, as you chronicle in this piece, which I can only imagine how complex it was to do the timeline and because there's been so many moves of different key people. And in fact, there's a very helpful chart, I guess, of showing how people move from place to place. But the bottom line is that these big PR firms over the last few years have been losing publicists who are mostly on the younger side, who have been branching off to start their own boutique operations. And I just wonder I guess, again, a piece of history, this is not the first time that has happened either, right? Well, it's not, but there seems to be different scale, which is happening now, mm-hmm. partly because companies like PMK were bought by big corporations, big parent companies. And for a while, these big parents were bringing them together, mm-hmm. melding them into mega PR companies. More recently, there's been this fracturing because if you're a 
dynamic publicist and you know your client is loyal to you, why should you be giving up most of that income to a company that doesn't give you that much extra service? The argument of the big companies is we have all sorts of other services that help you. If you want to go away on vacation, we have junior publicists who go to events. Uh, if you want help with speech writing, we have divisions that do that. All these other things. But if you are the publishers of big celebrities, you know those big celebrities want you to hold their hand. Mm -hmm. And they're saying, well, if I walk away with 10 of my clients, that is the nucleus for a lucrative company. Yeah, and it's happened with people representing the top, top, top stars, as you mentioned, you know, over these last four or five years, these are the people who have left big companies with major clients include everybody from Jennifer Lawrence and Amelia Clark, who's our guest on this episode, to Jordan Peele and Damien Chazelle and, and on and on and on. Really, the a, a lot of the top players in the business, there's still plenty of them that are at the big firms. But what is it about the state of the business today, just the the direction in which the business is itself is heading that has created maybe the opportunity for these people to go and start their own operations? Are there more people that need publicity right now? That's a very interesting thing, because when I went into this story, I went into it with the theory that the contraction of big stars, we haven't seen many big new stars, has meant that there's more of a scramble to get these clients. In fact, as almost everybody I spoke to pointed out, there's been an expansion of the business more than the contraction. There is so much content being created. Especially that for TV. TV, the web, mm -hmm. everywhere, that there are all sorts of people who need help in, in, in creating their public image. And the more media like us pay attention to the people behind the scenes, the more they need it too. If you looked at a recent cover, Vanity Fair, it was a writer and showrunner. It wasn't a huge name, Nicole Kidman. Right. So all these people need representation even more. So if you're that person who's thinking of leaving, you're not going, well, I can halve my number of clients. You're thinking the pool is going to double and triple and quadruple in the next 10 years. I want to be part of that. And if you can just take two or three major clients with you, you have the foundation for a an operation that can attract other clients. I was fascinated that when Liz Mahoney and Megan Mospachone and the Cup Fathers left ID and 42 West, within a few weeks, they had 122 clients listed on IMDb. In partnership with Brenna Rifkin from ID and Heidi Lopata from 42 West. And I can just tell you, even in terms of just who we've had on this podcast in the last few weeks, we're dealing with them a lot, as you're saying. These are, we're trying to limit it to the top, top people in right now, the TV season. It is a, it is amazing. There was no doesn't seem to have been a very rocky landing. And that's not to say that ID has fallen apart without them, but all parties seem to be doing just fine. If the pie is growing, there's yeah. more pie for everybody. Right, right. And where the pie is really growing is in where, the area you said earlier, which is the corporate representation. So if you're an ID or a PMK, you're making a lot more money in this area than you were before. And it's interesting that Michael Nyman, who was the co-chairman of PMK mm -hmm. left to go into a different financial role because he's now dealing with so many corporations. And frankly, if you have a choice of dealing with a celebrity and getting paid 5,000, let's say, per month, 
or dealing with a corporation where they're paying you fifty to a hundred thousand per month and they're not crazy mm-hmm. and they're not calling you at two o'clock in the morning and they're not getting arrested or going <laughs> to strip clubs right. or being caught with cocaine. It's no competition. You take the corporation. So is that the direction that you think this is moving in? If we were to reconvene about this topic in 10 years, would we be talking about the fact that these huge firms, the the giants that we've always talked about, like the Rogers and Cowens and whatever, that they are now predominantly focused on corporate clients and individual talent is now almost exclusively represented at various more like boutique operations? Or, do, or is that just kind of overstating what's likely to happen. It's overstating it radically. (laughs) I believe it's not true at all for the following reasons. First of all, this is driven by people's personalities. And most people who go into the field of celebrity PR like dealing with those clients. And they're comfortable dealing with talented actors, actresses, directors in the way they're not dealing with the board of Coca-Cola. So it's not an easy shift for many of those people. Secondly, those giant corporations do have a limited budget. They have their own marketing and publicity staffs. And one of the reasons they're drawn to the big PR companies is for the crossover potential with those companies' clients. So you're risking a lot if you sacrifice your bread and butter, the talent for the corporations. So the final question is just how this went over with the community here, because as we mentioned, we deal a lot with these publicists and their job is normally to safeguard the reputations of their clients. But you can be sure that they're also looking out for their own images, which they generally like to sort of ride below the radar. And so here you have brought this all out into the open and written about a lot of them. Did you hear from many afterwards? I was traveling when I thought the piece came out and I was looking at my email thinking, oh, wow, it's so quiet. This is good. (laughs) How stupid can you get? I got the day wrong. The day it came out, there was an avalanche of calls (laughs) from the bottom to the top, all basically saying, why didn't you include me in this article? (laughs) And I thought, how naive must I have been? As you know, Scott, The only people who take journalism more seriously than journalists are the publicists. (laughs) That's their job, too. So, of course, there was going to be an avalanche. And it was more about why wasn't I in there than I deserve to be higher in the pecking order, according to your chart? I pointed out to all of them, this is a brief story. It's not an encyclopedia. Names were included as examples, not as a listing service. They interpreted omission as rejection. If I were you, I might tell them that you're you're taking a hiatus from them <laughs> after that. Unfortunately, I think they've taken a hiatus, hiatus from, from me <laughs> since that. They can only afford to do that for so long. But that's the beauty of the business. So Stephen Galloway, great article, and thank you for joining us. My pleasure. And now for my interview with Amelia Clark. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, Clark and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them how a young actress who was rejected from all of the drama schools to which she applied before getting into one when another student dropped out, and who had never really had a professional acting job before, managed to land the part of Daenerys on Game of Thrones, how the show's initial reception compared to her expectations for it, and how she adjusted to becoming a very famous person, how the show's scale and visual effects have grown with each season, and how she, as an actress, navigates them, 
how she felt about being asked to perform quite a few nude scenes on the show, and why she feels that discussion about them can sometimes drown out what she regards as a more important discussion about what a force of a female character Daenerys proves to be, which line and episode she regards as her favorite thus far, and why, what her experience has been making films, including Solo, A Star Wars Story, during the five months of each year when she is not making Game of Thrones, as well as which major film roles got away from her, or, in the case of Fifty Shades of Grey, she walked away from playing, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Millie, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. No worries. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. Very exciting to have you here. And we always begin with just some of the, the basics. Where were you born and raised? What did your folks do for a living? So I was born in London, but raised in the countryside around London, sort of in Oxfordshire. And my dad was a sound designer for the theatre. And my mum, I know this off by heart now, <laughs> was a vice president of marketing for a global management consultancy. Wow, there you impressive. go. Yes. Yeah. So was it at all because of your dad that you were first exposed, I would guess, to theater or acting or whatever? I think, yes, it has to be. By I kind of, I said I wanted to be an actor really, really young, around the time, you know, when you're sort of, when you're that young, you're like, you don't know what your parents right. actually right, do. Right. You're like, well, you know, they're not at home and then they are at home right. and that's kind of right. it. But yeah, I grew up being able to be backstage, which is still the most magical like I just love the theatre, just love being in theatres, yeah. love being in that space, it makes me feel really at home. And the kind of, the magic that's there and knowing that I kind of had a way in. Right. Always and knowing that I kind of got to see how it all came about. Who is Jessica? I believe we owe Jessica thanks for losing out to you in a role or something early on. Is oh. that true? I was reading and maybe it's bullshit, but like maybe even when you were five or something in school, was that the first like... Oh, <laughs> oh my God, yes, Jess. Jess, Oh yeah. my God, that's hilarious. So basically, I was really little and we had this school play and my teacher kind of gave us like a mini audition. I mean, it's bonkers when you look back and you're like, I was like you're four years yeah, old, four, like, yeah. what the hell? And she gave us a mini audition and we both had to read this one line, Mama, where is my glove? <laughs> Still know it. <laughs> Great memory. And I, she read it and I read it. And then my teacher was like, I think, you know, Amelia, you, you can, you're going to play this and then you're going to play this and da, 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 da. And I remember just being really like, whoa, yeah, that's cool. That's that really, was a turning really cool. point. It could have all that been was, different. Could have all been different. <laughs> and then ironically, I, by the time I actually got on stage, I forgot all of my lines <laughs> and just stood there. So you asked to then, I guess, go off to boarding school. Was boarding school where you were now? Did this continue there? Boarding school was like the least theatrical moment Time, of my life yeah. in that no one did it. So like, you got the main part again, Amelia. Guess what? Because no one else wanted it. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah, like everyone else was doing hockey. And I was like, right. I'm going to go to the drama block and that? do some drama. I, one of my bestest friends is still, we looked at some videos of his wife found videos of us when we were in doing school plays. And it was, I'm amazed. <laughs> I'm amazed that my mum's out doing that. So... When along the line was it that you first started thinking about, all right, I want to actually pursue this when I go off, you know, I guess to equivalent of college or, or yeah. beyond? Like, when did it become a serious thing and how did that go over at home? Well, so, yeah, I was really young when I was like, no, I'm going to be an actor. And uh, my dad was just, you know, not into that as much because <laughs> he saw the truth of what acting yeah, really was. And he close. saw like what, like, oh, you want to you want to come into this self-employed world? <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Couldn't imagine anything better for my child. Right, right. And so I was really young and he kind of gave me a taster and took me to a West End audition, 
when I was really little and I completely messed it up. And he kind of didn't let me know what I was in for, which I think was really smart. Mm -hmm. I turned up and I didn't have a song prepared and I had to make it up. It was terrible. It was terrible. It was terrible. It was on the West End stage, like singing uh, donkey riding. It was pretty epic. And they very sweetly gave me a recall. And I didn't get it. And that was exactly what should have happened. And so then as a result of that, my parents were like, okay, do you want to go to maybe stage school at this tender age of 10 Mm. do you want to maybe have a look around because you're really serious about this so we looked around this particular stage school and it was heavily there was a lot of dance and there was a lot of you know like the triple threat they were Mm -hmm. making these people who could do everything perfectly and I just walked in and saw these girls in the slick back ballet hair and they scared the crap out of me (laughs) that was it (laughs) for a while yeah I looked at my parents and said I can't do this this isn't who I am but when I'm 18 I'll go to drama school and that was like the thing that I pinned all my hopes on so from the, from a very young age I was certain I was going to go to drama school it just got, and that was the plan well and that itself went almost askew right because yes. so what was what how does so, this yeah, happen? can you imagine that I've been saying for at that point you know like almost 10 years I'd been saying right I'm gonna be I'm gonna I'm gonna go to drama school and mm-hmm. it's gonna be great and I'd been at this boarding school where nothing you know acting was not particularly important no matter how much I tried and then I get to the drama school stage and I think I'm just going to apply to these two the big ones Rada sure thing Rada and Lambda neither were of them wanted me (laughs) (laughs) I did like one I mean these things are like eight rounds normally I think I got to it was just I was like knocked out in the first round in both and had a bit of like a what am I going to do with my life kind of moment and then took a gap year and did that, earned some money and went traveling and stuff. And then I applied to about 14 drama schools. I was pretty hell bent on going mm-hmm. and didn't get into any again, apart from I was on the waiting list for one. But are you thinking to yourself, like, what is going on? Because it's not, yeah. you were clearly you I know, had the talented and you had the desire to do it. So what, why do you think that was happening? I didn't know how to audition. Really? This is what I'm going to say. Mm-hmm. And I just wasn't prepared. I didn't know what I was getting myself in for. I'd been living this dream of like, I'm going to go to drama school and be an actor. And no one had actually, I had never met anyone who'd actually said, this is what you do. Because right. going to doing the whole drama school, it's a, there's a thing to it. You know, you've got to mm-hmm. like, and a lot of these kids are coming from places where that's just in you know everyone oh my such and such is this and that my dad was a sound designer he didn't know any like this was he would be asking people at work and they'd be like well I don't know (laughs) (laughs) I don't know just kind of so yeah I was just completely naive to how it all worked and I think I'd been kind of just living along with the idea of being an actor being a really lovely idea and so I think I got in by the skin of my teeth well there were that's kind of a crazy circumstance that made it possible right yeah so something happened to the girl who had my place she broke (laughs) her leg or something right and so they called me and they were like, someone's pulled out. This is the Drama Center. Drama Center. Yeah. yeah. Nicknamed Trauma Center. <laughs> um, so I picked a good one. Right. Oh my God. And so then I got that place and had like a, oh, this is, this is, this is how hard it is. Well, I was reading some other interviews that you've done and it, the way it sounds, well, I'll quote you right back. I got the Jewish grandmothers and all the farcical parts, close quote. Like, it's, it may be hard for some of our listeners to believe, but you basically said that you felt like everybody else there was more beautiful, more talented, all of this stuff. How could this be? I mean, like like you heard, I was coming at this really not For someone right. who'd said that they wanted to be an actor for a really long time, I didn't really think through how what it is to become an actor until mm-hmm. pretty late in the right. day. Because I was just like, I'm just going to do it. It's going right. to be fine. I believe in myself. That's enough. It's not enough, folks. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first. Yeah. It ain't enough. <laughs> yeah, so I went to drama school and just had the rudest awakening and was like, oh my God, I need to have read all of this stuff I haven't read. I need to have watched all of these things I don't know 
you know, I could quote Clueless, sure. Right. But that's only that only goes so far. Right, right. And, you know, I'm not stupid. I, I, I was aware. And when I was a much smaller, I would, like, learn Shakespeare off by heart. But getting to drama school, I really understood what it was to actually be an actor and actually really know your craft and be taught. And the first rule that we got taught was the first rule of acting is you sweep the stage. So it was really pretty hardcore and right. kind of conservatoire in its thought process, which... For someone like me, I just loved that and really, really loved getting my teeth into it and kind of never taking a day off and like working as hard as I could and being the eager beaver in the class and trying really hard, which resulted in a lot of Jewish grannies. Well, yeah. I mean, is that frustrating to you, though, at the time that, you know, did you feel like it was a bad thing that you were not getting the leads? Do you now feel differently in hindsight? Like- yes, I do. I really do. I d- yeah, I didn't really get to do the kind of roles, the ingenue you know, Shakespeare classical roles that you that you as a kid that you always want to do. Mm-hmm. And like you're at school, you're like, I want to be the, the, the pretty popular blonde girl mm-hmm. in the cheerleading team. Right. That's who I want to be. <laughs> and so when you're there, it sucks. Cause, but what it allowed me to do is have so much more freedom trying to be, you know, like, oh, I, maybe I can be funny. Mm-hmm. Maybe I could do that. And then really loved it and did this one farce quite early on and was like, oh, I can do this. This is like, this is why I watched I Love Lucy reruns right. a thousand times. <laughs> it's because it all comes to the same place. When you showed up there, were you thinking my ultimate dream is to be a theater actress or were you already thinking screen would be nice? I just wanted to be an actor. Mm-hmm. So it's really weird. I think I came at it thinking, knowing about the theater, but thinking I want to be a screen actor. And then I got there and went, all I want to do is theater. This is exactly where it's at. I love it so much. And also they don't teach you anything about screen. That right. it, I, like that we had like you know Michael Caine video telling us how to hit our mark. That was literally it. I know which video you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. yeah I uh. still use some of his tricks. Yeah. That's still how. It's still religious. The only thing right. I came armed at Game of Thrones with, I was like, okay, I just wonder, need to look like, in this eye. <laughs> I always think like, what was going on in Michael Caine's career at that time when he was like, all right, I'll I'll make an instructional the, video. Tell me about it. Yeah. It's the birth of a generation <laughs> of right, actors, though. Exactly. Like, there's a bunch of us who were like, yeah, no, don't blink, never blink. <laughs> So you you get through what was that like probably three years of that yeah school? three years of that school which was genuinely the happiest years of my life wow like a hundred percent it was just joy just complete joy I like met my tribe and then you are thrust out into the real world yeah so for the period of I don't know maybe a little more than a year I think between mm-hmm. the end of drama school and the beginning of the Game of Thrones chapter yeah what was going on. You were you were working, but not necessarily working. at things you no. wanted to. I was grimacing behind a bar. I was playing Snow White to bratty kids. <laughs> I was I was I was doing a lot of catering. I was just getting fired from every job because I was just marketing. I heard. Yeah, yeah, I did. I uh, yeah, I did. Uh, yeah, like a, it's for charity where you kind of call people and say like, you want to give us maybe a little more money. <laughs> That's the call everyone's thrilled to get. Oh my goodness! And you have right. to you have to hear them say no three times before you can legally hang up. Before in, in the in the right. terms of like the company right. that I was working for, oh, before Jesus. you can hang up. So you got a lot. You dealt with a lot of. And most of the time, I just end up chatting to them and being like, "Are you okay? <laughs> can I talk about like what's going on in your life right now?" So yeah, I was terrible at everything. And like I, you know, I, I can't do maths. So I, I behind the bar, I'm like giving people twenty pound notes back from a twenty. Then <laughs> you just. Yeah, have the drink on me. It's fine. It's all. It's all on me. What about a commercial in two thousand nine? That's yeah unusual. Did, 
Yeah, the Samaritans advert. That's the one where that's you the one were a crying in a council flat. Yeah, of abuse. Yeah, it was really bizarre. My agent called me and was like, "Listen, I just think this might be helpful. This might not be helpful. It might be something you should do." Right. And for like did, a did minute. You, did you hear the Snow White and the catering? And the, I'm like, <laughs> yes. As in, you're going to give me some. Someone's going to give me money to right. do my the acting. Right. That's right. What I cried for three years for yeah so I did that and it was actually really incredible it was 40 it was a 14 hour solid day of me essentially crying in this council flat in this like really grungy environment and getting really emotive yeah that's um, true for I think you have a full minute of just crying in the, ju- yeah yeah that's it and it was kind <laughs> of extraordinary because it was it kind of weirdly taught me a lot probably yet though where are you drawing that from like what are you Hopefully, well, I that's it. It's like one not. long. Okay, it's some. You know, there are things you know you're gonna have to do as an actor, and crying on screen is one of them. And because I was fresh out of drama school, I had all the tools, so right. I could. I kind of had to play, like see how this all works. And also, right. there was a camera in my face for the whole time, right so you're kind of learning about that, like right. that language between the actor and the camera. Which that I was your had first yet. screen acting. That was my first. Oh my God, was my first. <laughs> no, I take it back. Yeah. My previous screen acting was guest lead on a daytime television show called Doctors, yes, which, um, yeah, everyone talks about their doctor's duty. Right, that was yours. <laughs> yeah, you got to do it. Bonnet duty or doctor's duty. So I did that. And then there was a movie role, but so prominent that you've never bothered to watch it is that correct <laughs> yeah so that's but this is just to I've say never seen it never to this day so to this day i can't so, i just can't i mean I, I don't even have the title so i i uh you've done I'm a nice job of hiding it, it right um but you, so you a lot was going on probably not a lot of what you were hoping would be going on but in that year and you yeah. had sort of given yourself a year to like make it happen or not or yeah, get out. That was my that was my little rule to myself. Like I kind of Yeah, I just said when I left drama school, I was like, okay, you've got a year. And I'd had like a bunch of stuff happen at the end of drama school with like different reps and it all terrible, stupid things happened. Right. And so I was very like, don't mess this up. Okay? Don't, you're not gonna be underprepared. This is your shot. Right. Let's be realistic about this, which is what my dad always gave me, the insight of like do you know what? Do you know how hard it is to be an actor? Mm-hmm. It's really hard, and you're self-employed, and you're sure. <laughs> Do you want a mortgage? Right. You know, are you really sure? Yes, yeah, so I gave myself a year to say if it doesn't set my world alight, I'm not going to take it. And that year basically came and went. Yeah, so I turned down one thing. What was that? <laughs> Which you know, like my friends were like, "You can't." I mean, you who do you think you are? You you can't turn down work. What the <laughs> fuck are you doing? Right. It was a play above a pub. And it was for quite a long run. And so I didn't take it. And I was like, no, I'm just going to... And I was coming to the end of that year and I was working at this museum, this really bizarre museum that really hired a lot of actors to kind of do a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I got a call from my agent back in the day when you'd like run to find somewhere quiet to speak to them. Michael, I still do. Jeremy, I still do. I still do. I swear to God I do. I promise you. Oh, shit. (laughs) Um, So, yes, I ran to the loo and, like, stood on the... Because people checked to see where you're like whispering being like hey you, like what's up what are you right, calling me about right and it was he was he just said have you heard of game of thrones and i was like nope doesn't matter <laughs> hadn't heard of the book hadn't heard of the fact that they'd actually done a pilot, a pilot with tom mccarthy right that's how yeah and i hadn't yeah and that was somebody else and just mm-hmm. that didn't go and now they wanted to give it another shot yeah and that was exactly it so my agent told me all of this on the phone and i was just like hb uh you 
you shitting me? Oh my God, I'm going to quit now. I'm going right, to quit my job. Right. So I ran home, called in sick the next day and learned my lines. Well, and did you feel like you had to, you had to familiarize yourself with these you know, the source material or, or? Yeah, it was a lot of Wikipedia. It was a lot of cheat sheeting. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of like, around. okay, okay, there's dragons, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> so where was the audition? My first audition was with Nina Gold, God lover, right. in her gorgeous house in London. And so I went and they put me on tape. Do, do you remember what Robert. you had to do? Yes, I did the first speech. So in season one, Listeners, if this is going to spoil something for you, I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, There's a scene with my brother and he basically, it's the first time that I stop him from hitting me. And then the next thing that I had to learn was the final speech right. to my Dothraki tribe. Right. So it was to kind of get, to give them, if, the, if I could do both, you know right. what I mean? If I could do right. that like turn. And learned it and learned it and learned it and learned it and went and got like, this was also in a time when I kind of actually do still do this sometimes for auditions, you'll sort of dress slightly leaning into something that might be helpful for the character. Okay. So, so I got this, um, it was this necklace and it had like, it was kind of tribal. And I thought, I was like, I think this is going to be helpful. Anyway, so I wore that. And then I wore that to every audition I had for <laughs> After that. <laughs> to the point where Dan Weiss is like, yeah, you wore that funky necklace. And I'm like, yes, it works. <laughs> like, I'm always going to try and wear something that's right. like a little helpful. So that video that's done with Nina Gold goes over to... To D&D, &D, to D &D, David and Dan, right. to, to the execs. And you now get, hey, we're gonna, we want to bring you over to America to do the next round. So that no, they go, hey, meet us in a room in Soho oh, okay, and okay. we'll and we'll hear you. And it was one of those rooms that you can hear everything through the door. So they were obviously seeing like a bunch of girls. Right. And so I heard the girl before me, which is just horrific. I mean, yeah. it's horrific. Yeah. It's just mean. <laughs> and so I walked in and just it's this weird thing. I'll never forget it. There was just this table with just the, this incredible fruit platter on it and I remember being like I've never this is like the fanciest audition I've ever been to it's HBO for you. Yeah. yeah wow like I'm seriously like wow. plays in pubs you know what I mean like yeah. this was heavy <laughs> so yeah so it was Nina and David and Dan and Carolyn Strauss and I think that was everyone and in that the audition same so then again. I did it for them yes same exactly yeah. the same thing so after that, I waited a couple days and I was with my boyfriend at the time in his place in Cornwall and they called me and they were like, you got three weeks, you're on a plane to LA. By this point, I'd bought the book and was like, oh, okay, working my way through it. Right. Three weeks happened. And then by the time I got there and like, I, I mean, literally this was like three weeks where like I would do everything super everything to not bring about like in London, there's three drains and there's a lot of people in the world who maybe will listen to this and go, yeah, I do that too. Right. Where you don't, you can't step on the three drains. <laughs> this is bad luck. <laughs> so I didn't step on any drains okay. and I like worked out and I was really like, I just like saw it like a kind of, I was like Rocky. I was just so into it. And I read the book about, I think I read the book twice in that time. Wow. Like, I mean, I was obsessed. Yeah. I was just like, this is going to happen. This and has to happen. And you were personally getting in you were into that kind of material or it was just like this is what's coming let's this, I better get into it yeah it was more that I saw that there was a girl who had a lot of stuff there was stuff there there mm -hmm. was like and then when I read the books I was like oh no this is this is a part this is a really yeah you know the book she gets her own chapter they all the characters have the chapter I'm like she's got her own chapter this is heavy this mm -hmm. is big this mm -hmm. is gonna be really a special thing so yeah they flew me to LA I they flew me business class I stole all the tea <laughs> I just was like I'm never gonna be here again <laughs> enjoy every minute 
and yeah and then I, I got to HBO and there was another girl who was also auditioning and like I tried really hard not to not to see her so like they'd be like oh so and so whoever it was is just walking up there and I'd like turn because <laughs> I knew she was going to be like six foot and gorgeous uh, and like some absolute babe and I was just like no I can't I can't let that get in my head but just just because <laughs> what must have been in your head was that even when you're agent I guess pitched you to the casting director to initiate this process yeah he or she did that knowing that according to the description of the character in the book oh yeah you were I not right that. I ain't that right I mean I think my agent probably strong-armed Nina right I, I've got like a kind of sneaky suspicion right. that Nina was like I don't know who this girl is she's right. fresh out of drama school and she looks nothing like the part which was like saying like a tall tall and willowy, willowy. Willowy people. I mean, come on. Like, I've, I literally am going to spend, I've spent the rest of my life dreaming of being a willowy. It ain't never going to happen. Five foot two, okay? Like, no, no oh, willow man. here. So you're uh-uh. in LA now. It's your turn. Yeah. What I know. So then I do the audition and it's in, literally, in, it's in an auditorium. It's in like a cinema screening room. And there are like 20 people there, all huddled in the middle. Oh my god! And I was just—I mean, I'd had three weeks of complete ner- no, like everyone, everyone who I knew knew this was happening, and everyone who I knew was like waiting by the phone, being like, "Come on, Amelia, you can do this." And yeah, so I get in, and I'm wearing. They told me to dress nice, <laughs> <laughs> so I did. And it took me like it was like a week's worth of shopping to come up with this white dress and these wedge heels. <laughs> um, so I go trotting down the stairs, and I, yeah, do the audition. And they had prepped me and said, we might get you to do something else. Because initially it was, this, again, the same scenes or it was... Yes, and Harry Lloyd was there. Okay. Who plays my brother. Right. And he was there and was just the sweetest, most, like, encouraging, kind guy. And so I did the scenes with him, which was really helpful. And so <laughs> they had told me, be prepared to do something else. So at the end, I mean, I had so much adrenaline. I didn't know. It was it was like I was on drugs. Right. It was so intense. <laughs> and so then I said at the end, like, can I, is there anything else I can do? Is there something I, you need me to do other than that? Because I'm ready. Right. Because <laughs> I'm ready. Come a long way. Yeah. I think I'd been like small talking with someone about the workout regime I'd done. So that I was, you know, they'd made some crack, some joke about like, oh, I could do some high kicks. And I <laughs> tried. I was wearing this silly dress. So I couldn't. Right. And then and then David Benioff in all his hilarity was like, <laughs> well, you could do a dance. Funny. Now I know it's just funny. Don't right. always do what David Benioff tells right, you to do. Right, right. <laughs> and then I did. You did the funky chicken because what else do you do when you've got that much adrenaline and you're right. a kid and you're not willowy and you're doing everything you can <laughs> you, you must have done a, a excellent funky chicken because so like how long after that the, the funky chicken yeah after the, after did that that sealed the deal i guess i just don't know what? i think it's i think that video is out there somewhere because i saw recorded at some point i like you know this was something you do learn as an actor as well later on in life is when to leave the room right. <laughs> Oi. That could have been. Yeah, I still now, I'm like, Amelia, it's time to leave the room. Right. At that point, I didn't know it was time to leave the room. So I think I even broke into the robot oh before I knew. God. I was like, okay, it's hard. Like, I, I think would, someone saved me. I was video, like, you can go. Uh, one day. One we'll, day. We'll get to see. But so, all right, you eventually leave the room. How yeah. did you get back to London um, before you knew No, that- so then I go into the room that I'd sort of been held in right. with all the Diet Coke that I had drunk, right. hence all of the right. jitters. Right. And Dan and Frank and David, Frank Dolger and, and David came in and they just said, congratulations, princess. Oh, wow. And I like 
just you know it makes me like feel all tingly even think about it it was just the most happiest moment of my entire existence did it they, was literally just insane i know that's amazing did they tell you what actually tipped the scales for you like why they said the you, funky chicken i mean that's it <laughs> you know if there's anything that danny is right it's a willowy funky chicken. yes that's absolutely just, <laughs> no i've got no idea i don't know just to like restate this because it's kind of unbelievable this was the first real role that you'd ever been hired to play yes as a professional actor yes and I think for enough, like Sophie Turner, same thing, I think, yeah. right? And maybe yeah. Maisie, I don't yeah. know. Like, that's kind of, they're betting a major thing on a lot of people who have never... It's extraordinary. Right? I think that, like, Game of Thrones is one of those, it's just a thing unto itself that I think only on my deathbed will I really get it. Because yeah. I'm in it, so I can't right. I can't even begin to understand people like, did you know? I'm like, God, I bloody <laughs> didn't know. Well, <laughs> no idea. How intimidating was it when you now, like, A, or starting to really prep to actually mm. do it now and then also you show up and probably for the first time appreciated the scale of what you were dealing with were you able to just kind of stomach that or was that a tough adjustment yeah well I mean every actor of course everyone who's self-employed can get this is you get the job and you're euphoric for 30 seconds right I mean back then I was no I was partied for a week right. but <laughs> legitimately like everyone right. I knew was like let's have a party I'm like okay <laughs> I'm employed right but you get the job and you get excited for a second and then the daunting realisation that you actually have to do it comes in <laughs> and you're like, oh, oh no, oh right. no, I've got to actually turn up. And I think I was on a knife edge the entire way through filming that first season. I don't think I ever relaxed at any point. I carried the book around like it was some kind of talisman. Right. I mean, I have so many notes in it. I used to read it religiously right. every night. I pulled out every acting trick I had in my bag and took it incredibly seriously. Because I didn't understand what it was being on a film set. Assistant directors follow you everywhere mm-hmm. to check that you're not, you know, like, going to run away because right. it's on them. Right. <laughs> like, if you don't turn up, <laughs> someone's going to get fired. Right. I couldn't quite handle that kind of, like, oh, you do... Like, I thought I had some sort of weird echo. Like, I mean, it's going to the loo, she's going to the loo. And you're like, let's just, let's just take a minute. So I used to hide in car parks before preparing for some of the difficult scenes I literally remember vividly of crouching behind some wall behind a car just kind of taking a breath and being like okay you can do this everything's gonna be fine so there was a lot of that there's a lot of hiding in car parks it's season one (laughs) and even though right now you know just for listeners, I'm looking across you. You, you are blonde today, but you are yes, not at last. Yes, at last. <laughs> it happened. But like the fact is, you are not naturally blonde. No, no. And when you show up and they need you to be blonde, are they dyeing your hair? Are they giving you a wig? No, What's happening? They gave me a wig straight away. Yeah, and it was the most epic hair test in the world. I think we tried my incredible hair department, Kev Alexander, Candice. <laughs> they are literal geniuses. Like. Normally you go to the hairdressers and you're like, I'm going to go peroxide blonde and they'll go, it doesn't suit you. You've got really dark hair. That's never going to work. <laughs> and so they made this beautiful color that everyone was happy with mm-hmm. and the most beautiful wig. Right. Takes a minute to put on because I'm very dark right. hair and no one ever wants to see that it's a wig. <laughs> so everyone thinks that it, right. that was my hair for a very long time. It's a lot of hair. It's a lot of hair. Yeah. It's a lot of hair. Yeah. I know you said you were stressed the whole first season, but were you able to get the sense during the making of it? that you were a part of something that was really special. Again, I guess you didn't have a point of reference because it was your first thing, but no, or did, did you have to see it to really get it? So it's really, really hard. And I wrestle with this quite a lot because I had absolutely no idea what was going on when it was going on. Because, I mean, I literally would just wake up and try and survive the day. 
like literally don't let them know that they shouldn't have hired <laughs> you because they shouldn't have hired you like right. Just every day thinking this is going to be, you're going to get, it's never going to, I didn't understand that lots of people were going to watch it. I didn't, you know, I I remember vividly, I was on holiday in this tiny little place in Italy when it was being aired. So I was away from it all. And I got a call from my agent being like, you're number one on IMDb. And I was like, what is IMDb? I don't understand what that is. And so I Googled it and was like, oh. That's kind of interesting. This was after the first episode. This was after the first, the first, Seven. yeah, or the yeah, first at some yeah, point during yeah. that. T- I can't even. I think right. maybe episode two. Or right, I, right. I literally, right. but I had, n- I had no idea what they were talking about. I had no idea you about. Just didn't any of imagine it. that it was going to be that big. No. Yeah. Not in a. I guess who? How could you? That would be. It's. It would be crazy. I mean, no. And so you know, people are like, "How did it feel to sign up for that many seasons?" And I'm like, "I don't know. I didn't even know I did. Right. Like, <laughs> I could have been fired right. at any point. Right. I was faking right. it." Well, like, I thought I got such a kick out of one story, which I kind of hope is true. That so the show goes on HBO debuted April seventeenth, twenty eleven. But before that, in January, are the Golden Globes, the SAG Awards, Critics' Choice, all of that run up to it. Mm-hmm. And I believe that you attended the SAG Awards for the first time in January 2011, three months before yeah. it was on the air because they like to raise awareness and yes. try to. And so yes. how did that go for you? <laughs> <laughs> so people listening, SAG Awards, it's a lot of photographers. Right. It's a really big bank of photographers, like almost the most and still to this day, to me, one of the most right. daunting red carpets you could ever walk. Bearing in mind, I ain't never walked no red carpet. Right. Like, point, yeah. never. Not never, not ever. Right. I, yeah. Beg, borrow, steal, address. Like, please <laughs> just let me go. Yeah, so I, I turn up and I'm kind of ushered onto the carpet. And you're like, okay, because I can do this now. I now know what a mark is. And now I know I've got to stand on my mm-hmm. mark. Okay, there we go. Who are you? <laughs> Who are you? What does your name? Who come on, sweetheart? Crackers a smile. Who are you? And they're screaming this. And there's like... There's this huge bank of photographers. I mean, I don't know. There's probably like 100 people there. And they're all screaming that. This is just three months that. before they would murder each other to get a, a, a clean no, shot No, I still of get you. it sometimes. Right. Emily, over here. Camilla. <laughs> Sandra. I'm like, who are you? And I ain't none of those names. <laughs> you got a list. Oh just take a God. glance. Right. Oh and so I had in this split second moment this decision to make i'm like you can either shout your name right you (laughs) You can either say sorry it's um amelia with an e uh with a clock it's got an e at the end as well in case you sort of and it's actually with an i and (laughs) and so i thought i'm not going to do that because i'm pretty sure that they're going to take a picture of me mouthing my name which ain't pretty no no and so i decided to just stand there (laughs) harness myself at four on that stage having forgotten her lines just stand there and absorb it and i thought if no one's going to take my picture the one person who does will get me standing looking poised. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now so, we yeah. you get to April. It goes out for the first time. Yeah. How quickly and in what ways did your like day-to-day life change? What because I'm brown-haired, it re- day-to-day didn't change aside from the fact of people being like oh, I've seen your show, or like, I don't like you now, you were in a successful <laughs> show, I'm no longer your friend. Right. And just kind of, I remember, <laughs> I remember my amazing brother, my big brother Ben, he went on eBay and he bought a mug with my face on it for 99p because he was like, dude, your face is on a mug. That and was it's the... sold on eBay. <laughs> we still have it. That's awesome. Yeah, it's like a really shoddy printed job of my face on a mug that, yeah, still is at home. Makes me feel kind of weird. <laughs> so, yeah, it didn't really change. And then I've literally been playing catch up 
ever since. And so, you know, I went to, I just, you know, and then I'd just go to work and I'd approach it in exactly the same way. And the only thing that changed was that I was kind of getting different calls. You know what That's I mean? Yeah, so. Like I had a show reel now right. and stuff was sort of changing. But also still, Game of Thrones has been, was successful, absolutely in the beginning, but it's been growing and growing yeah. and growing and growing. And I feel like now it's at its peak. Right. But in the beginning, People still hadn't seen it. And a lot of people were like, oh, no, that's all like nudity and violence. I'm not into that. <laughs> or like, I don't do sci-fi. Right. Or I don't do fantasy, fantasy or whatever genre they decided it was in. So there was a lot of that of people being like, no. So it's kind of extraordinary to see a genre come about to be incredibly popular. Yeah, after you guys the fact, made that happen. Yeah, so for TV. Yeah. So it was it was kind of really interesting. But luckily for me i because i had brown hair no one really knew who i was so i would take kit's picture a lot people would be like oh my god will you take a picture of us please and i'm like sure i will <laughs> and so then i remember we went to this gig and i went to the loo and these girl and kit went to the loo and alf went to the loo and then i went to the loo and the girls who were in the next door cubicle were like oh my god it's john snow he's so cute look at his hair and i was just on the loo being like lol <laughs> and so that happened a fair amount and it also allowed me to be in rooms with people who would treat me like a normal person. That's nice. And then they would turn it and then they would realise it and go, oh, I should have spoken to you. Oh. And you're like, ooh, interesting. Yeah. You're not nice. <laughs> Good social experiment. Yeah, no, it is. It well, really is. So to come, back, <laughs> to come back to something else you just referenced a second ago, yes. I would think that for anyone, let alone someone who has never really acted professionally prior to this, yes. having to do... Any nudity, let alone the volume of nudity, especially in the early seasons, that that would be intimidating, even for the most beautiful person in the world, which Esquire quickly decided oh gosh, you were. Yeah. Esquire but, and my mom, yeah. Yeah, and your mom. <laughs> but at that point, you're just like, again, to remind me, like a 23-year-old girl who's like new to this yeah. and being asked to do this. So I think that you have said in some other things that I read that it's not like you were a nudist or something before this that it's no. just naturally what you do no. so was it a bit like jarring to be asked to do as much as you were or it's, any of um, it it's really it's really interesting because i came from drama school where the character was it mm -hmm. and the words were it and you paid service to that and you trained i was trained to read my script and to do my homework and to do it well and to find a reason for everything. Mm -hmm. Like it's on it's on you. There's you're saying those words. Why are you saying those words? I don't know. Figure it out. Cause it's the right words, because that's what the character is. Mm -hmm. You just it's all in it's all there. So same thing goes for the actions. And it wasn't like she was a stripper. Right. She wasn't choosing to do these things. They were happening to her. And so was it daunting for me as a twenty three year old to do it? Yes. Hundred percent. Hell, you know, it's daunting anyway right. but I must admit I believe having done it people care more for her as a character because they've seen her suffer so there's that but the the volume of interest in the fact that I took my clothes off is astonishing to me because as an Amelia Clark didn't go up on stage and go what up guys check out these guys <laughs> that didn't happen right. I took on a character and the character had things happen to her 
I also didn't like, you know, oh my God, you're fireproof? Like that's something, that never get asked. I never get asked that, but well, I get asked about nudity a huge amount. So it's, fa- it's, it makes me kind of question, like why why do people get so into this as, a, as an idea of like, because as an actor, I always knew that certain things were going to happen. I was going to have to cry. Mm-hmm. I was going to have to maybe do a little bit of violence in some kind, mm-hmm. like be hit or hit. And how do you do that safely? Mm-hmm. And also falling in love, sex, all of the stuff that goes along with that. That's also as an actor, if you're portraying life. But it is something that I get asked more than any other well, question. Well, but I think what part B of the question is, is that, you know, it's interesting how it was sort of subverted to show that she is actually very much in control. So maybe the first time or one of the first times we see this, she is essentially being raped by her husband. Yeah. But the next time she's doing it on her own terms. Exactly. I think it was brave of the show Mm -hmm. to do this, Mm -hmm. to do a character development that went there. Mm -hmm. And I think that it paid off in that sense. It was a risk that people took, that the show took, and it worked because... It's exactly that. It was a way of showing a girl taking control, a woman right. taking control. And I think it I think it had a huge social commentary about that. And I think it it had a powerful impact that 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 really I don't you just it's the most vulnerable thing you could see. It's the the single most vulnerable thing you could see happen to anyone, man or woman. And the reality is that if people are actually paying attention it's probably there are probably few female characters in tv history who have been as powerful in their tv universe as she is i mean freeing slaves leading all these people you know being a how many times have we seen a female leader of that many people at that high level exactly and so it's really it genuinely is something that i find really difficult handling because like I was reading an article the other day that Mikhail who was my gorgeous Dario and the the interviewer put down because Amelia Clark takes her clothes off all the time and I'm like that's not fair not accurate and not and it makes me really sad because mm-hmm. exactly as you say Daenerys is so much more than someone who had scenes where that happened it's so much more and it's and she as a character is so powerful within the show and within the realms of it. So it gets really, you're really like, why don't we just keep talking about that? Right, and well, I think also, by the way, I saw there's at least one report that says that 40% of Game of Thrones viewers are women. I don't think they would be necessarily tuning in if they felt that she was purely, you know, for the male gaze. No, exactly, exactly. It's just really an interesting comment on our society that that is a question that people want to talk about all the time. And I'm like, hey guys, you know what? Just let's, let's take it somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. Logistically, though, with the stuff, I mean, you've said that each season as it's gone on, the technical apparatuses or whatever Mm -hmm. around you have just gotten bigger and more impressive. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, as somebody who is acting opposite, I don't know what, but not what we see. (laughs) Tennis balls. Right. Yeah. Like, and probably the equivalent of like a mechanical bowl or whatever with some of the dragons. Although this season is badass. (laughs) Yeah. What they've made, I'm like, it just keeps getting better better and better. better. Yeah. But like, Mm -hmm. how do you keep that acting kind of grounded in reality where you are having an emotional connection with your dragons or whatever it requires of you like is there a secret to doing that when again it's not something like you had i mean maybe by the time you did terminator or something or star wars and you had to do it you've got some experience but you were like thrown in the deep end with that well i because 
in drama school, you're manifesting emotions uh, with people that aren't the people that in your mind you would be saying this to. And that kind of happens in other parts. You know, you can like, you could be, you could be talking to an actor in the scene, your scene partner, who's giving you nothing. Right. That happens. <laughs> that does happen where you're like, hey, in the eyes, you want to move in the eyes? Okay, fine. <laughs> sure, look at my ear. We're good with that. So that is, as an actor, whilst you can sometimes have the luck of walking into a set where you go, I don't need to do anything. This is so incredible. This is real. This is like, tangible. I can touch it. I can feel it. I can see it. And it's all helpful for the scene. A lot of the time you're not. A lot of the time you're in a studio and, and you're acting with someone who maybe isn't giving you whatever it is. So you, it's a skill that as an actor you have to have. You have to be able to endow that person, that thing, that table with as much truth as you possibly can. So when it turns from a person who you kind of, you know, with <laughs> <laughs> into a green screen, sometimes the green's easier. Yeah. Sometimes, <laughs> not going to lie, occasionally a tennis ball, you're like, okay, yeah. only occasionally. <laughs> All right, so we're coming off the most recent season was the seventh, the one from last fall. What stands out to you the most? What are you proudest of about that one, which was the first in which you got to work with a lot of these people who I know, we've, my pals. Yeah, all these guys that, you <laughs> they know. They let me in the group. <laughs> yeah. How, how, what was for you the, the kind of highlight takeaway from that season? It's exactly that, the camaraderie that I suddenly felt. Because I've really been out, I've been out on my own a lot. You know, they kind of, season one, we were all like absolutely in it together in mm-hmm. the trenches, like making something, being like, we don't know what we're doing. Right. <laughs> and then I just got like kind of put somewhere else on a, in a desert somewhere <laughs> for a little while. Right. And so coming back and seeing everyone has, it's just been the best. It's just been really, really fun. And you kind of, you're like chilling in the green room being like, yeah, guys, we're going to have a good time. Right. So the highlight has been that. The highlight has been surrounded by people who go going through the same thing. Yeah. Since 2010, I guess, which, you know, whatever, the year prior to the show going out for the first time, the way I've seen it broken down, I think it's correct, is like seven months of every year, this is your life. Game of Thrones is your life, right? Yeah. And often starting 3 a.m. Yeah. For hair and makeup, which, yes. speaking of inequality, I don't know if the men have to necessarily get up that early Oy, as well. But No, tell me about it. I think there's a lot of, I thought it was just certain things, but actually you just speak to a lot of ladies <laughs> and we're all doing the same. Yeah. We're all doing that and early, long, cool. long days after that. But this is all to ask the question, which is, you know, so you got these other five months of the year, you would be within your <laughs> rights to like <laughs> take it easy. Like, honestly, yeah. like why not like relax? So what is it that instead, <laughs> just to list for folks, you've done the eight shows a week of Breakfast at Tiffany's on Broadway in 2013. Oy. You did... <laughs> Sarah Connor, the, of course, iconic character from Terminator in yeah. Terminator Genesis. We've got this next Star Wars coming. I, I don't know if you can share anything about who you're playing there. Also, this year, I guess, is above suspicion. But, like, why, when you're getting brutalized for seven months of the year, why push yourself that hard for the other five? Why not? Because <laughs> I just, I really love what I do. I'm an absolute workaholic. And in that same vein of I left drama school and gave myself a year, I don't know. I'm pretty fatalistic about this industry because I think that what's doing so good today maybe isn't going to do so good tomorrow. So why not grab it with both hands and Mm -hmm. live it and and kind of I feel like it's the only way I can get better as an actor. The Mm -hmm. only way I can get figure out what it is that I actually want to do is to try everything. Mm -hmm. I always said that from the beginning. I was always like, I want to just try and try to do everything Mm -hmm. 
to figure out what bits I really like and what bits I really don't like so that when I'm older, I can feel a bit more kind of secure in going, no, you know what? I know. I know what it is that I like. I know what it is that I don't. I know that I'm ready for this or I know that I'm ready to actually do something completely different. I mean, that's never going to happen. But And I'm just kind of addicted to it. In your mind, is it important to have a specifically a film career simultaneously? Now, you've obviously now the highest point you can be in TV doesn't mean you wouldn't want to do more TV necessarily. But like, is film specifically alluring to you? Yeah, I think that the stage is something I'll always go back to Mm -hmm. because it's like going back to drama school. You just you just got to check in with those muscles. You got to check in with it. And also, I just it's like there is no camaraderie like the ensemble of a theater. Nothing like it. You can't be closer to people. And I love that. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of magical. And then screen, I just think there's so much I don't know. And there's so much I want to know. And there's the art of how movies get made and of what you can actually do is kind of mind-blowing to me. And there's so much that I'm learning all the time. Yeah. And that's really exciting. So I want to make them. I want to be a part of making those choices because I've witnessed movie making and whilst I'm we're talking about a television show it ain't TV no, you guys folks are really doing uh-uh. a film for TV yeah like I've done I've done Terminator and right. Star Wars and both were like but you've never seen anything like this and I'm like actually I have <laughs> <laughs> sorry I hate to break it to right. you folks but I got it that dragon right. so I've watched for a few years now just movie making at the highest level yeah and I've asked questions and I've learnt a lot and I've learned a lot about character development and how you tell a story, how you really tell a story and what are the kind of stories that I want to watch and how watching them kind of being shown to the masses and like what people are responding to and, and what do you kind of, and you get to a point in your career where you just want to take some creative control right. and you want to make some choices. Well, just to your point about at least being comparable Game of Thrones with some of these big movies you've done. Alan Taylor, who directed a lot of the Game of Thrones mm. episodes, directed your exactly. Terminator movies. No, exactly. But anyway, were there any big film roles that kind of eluded you that you really wanted? I heard one, maybe. Loads. Yeah. Obviously, you watch a movie and you go, damn it. Right, right, right. <laughs> but like stuff where you were like in the mix. And for what, and then I'm going to do the flip side of this question in a second. But like okay. something you really wanted that you didn't get. I mean, got you in the moment, it's like your every breath and then... Now I'm sitting here forgetting everything. Well, being I heard like, Ex Machina. No, no, no. Oh, yes. No, I was desperate for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was one. God, yeah. That was just... I think I would have been pretty bad at it, though. I just... My face doesn't stop moving. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like, yeah, this ain't robotic. This is, this is some, like... There's got to be some serious intel behind this robot face. Right. <laughs> but I just thought that the subject matter was really, really exciting and right. dark and cool. And it made an amazing movie. And then the so. no, it was great. It was great. The <laughs> flip side, though, is something where they really wanted you, and you did not necessarily want them. I heard there may have been another project that could have required a bit more nudity. Oh again, God, I knew you were going to go there. Which, uh, um, <laughs> I literally remember saying that out loud and going, oh, "I should never have said that." It genuinely wasn't a nudity thing. We're talking about Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah, yeah. it was just I knew the enormity of what that was. I mean, what is it, the most successful book ever or something? It's insane. Well, I mean, you also work on a pretty I mean, successful book. Yeah, trends, obviously. Right. <laughs> They've successful books. Right. But it was, I knew it was going to be something absolutely forever. That was it. Right. 
and I just didn't I didn't I didn't think I could take that mm-hmm. I didn't think I could take that on at all I was right. not in any way at that point in my life I wasn't ready I wasn't ready placed right. for that to be something that I was going to be cool doing because of that and because also it's that thing yeah you sign up for three which is every studio movie and you're like well what if I don't know what I want to do in three years what if I change my mind you sign up for three years or three movies three movies and is that which you know the- you could be six years down the line and they'll go yeah time for your third yeah <laughs> Well, what's Dimes is that? What's folks. the case with like Star Wars? Are you multiple? Yes, yeah. but it's kind of because it's one of their standalone movies. I have no idea that how really that will manifest itself. Yeah. yeah, and it could be maybe that you know this character is. No, I can't say a single thing. I have no idea. I have no idea. But like, I think it's like an insurance thing you that certain option. studios have, where like yeah. they have the option of doing that. Right. And also it's Star Wars, folks. You know, there's that. <laughs> like, They've really been I'm having blessed. a lot <laughs> of, uh, of me. badass women in Star Wars lately. This is yeah, in that vein. That's like, you mm-hmm. are, you will, I don't know anything about the character that haven't seen the movie yet, haven't let us see the movie yet. No, of course um, I haven't. But you're, you want to give any sort of a tease about what that will entail? Um, it will entail some seriously good movie watching. Okay. It's right. a Star Wars movie. Right. Well, that's a, that's a big thing. <laughs> it's a huge thing. No, it's going to be, it's good. It's, yeah, I think, I think people are going to like this. Last few things are just sort of like big picture. You know, we've obviously, as we've talked about, seen a massive transformation of Daenerys over all these years of mm-hmm. seasons of the show. And I wonder if you can just maybe comment on that and also how simultaneously you now we're talking like eight, nine years of your life. Yeah. Have you noticed parallels between those two things? Yeah, definitely. Occasionally, in some years, it's uncanny where you're like, wow, what I'm going to mentally as an actor need to play this part now is what I'm what I'm living with. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of incredible obviously you know different I mean you know take poetic license right. not exactly the same <laughs> so the transformation of Daenerys is the greatest gift I've been given as an actor 100% and it's it's you've said like basically a girl growing up into a woman which I mean that's what your 20s spoiler generally are yeah, yeah so. exactly <laughs> exactly um, but bad mistakes have been made right. <laughs> no um, people have been killed though no as far people as have we been killed right. no 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 yes um, no people were hurting hurt in the making <laughs> Amelia, of my right. 30s yeah it's been an extraordinary journey to go on with her I've been able to just kind of witness things and be be able to harness things and make something so extraordinary yeah it's just a complete once in a lifetime thing and i it's incredibly emotional this final season that we're in the middle of right now it's shooting it's shooting now. right now folks all right what yeah. is your favorite line that you've gotten to deliver on the show oh goodness me that's a really good one i mean when i first said dracarys that was pretty mm-hmm. badass what about the episode that you're proudest of your own work in. In other words, and here's a scenario for you. Okay. If there's, you know, years from now, a college or graduate class on Game of Thrones, which, by the way, they do this at Harvard and <laughs> places like that. No. Um, and if they're going to devote one class to studying your specific contributions to the show, which means they can only watch one episode to see what you did on the show at its best, what would that episode be? Oh, cool, blimey. The most spine-tingling moment I've had... I mean, aside from the ones that are happening right now, I think is the moment when I let them know that the game's up on me not understanding Valyrian. Because that was the, that was truly the beginning of a lot. And I think as me as Amelia in my life at that point, I was kind of suddenly going, 
oh, this is exciting. I can make some choices and see them through. And I think it happened at the same time as this this part of Daenerys really coming to the to the forefront. And I think it was just the most kind of it was playful. And at the same time, it was deadly. And it started something that at the time was like so satisfying, so incredibly satisfying to be like, game's up, folks, and guess what? I'm going to kill you all. So we're talking again about the Dracarys episode. Yeah. 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 And it was really raucous filming it. And it was kind of, it was, it was just the most, it got the biggest reaction from people. <laughs> Which was just satisfying, yeah. I think, because it, it was one of those scenes that even filming it, you feel it and you feel it loads. And oftentimes with those huge big set pieces, you don't really get to feel it because they're just going to do your part of it. And then I would bet that's similar to the episode where you're lifted up by all the, the slaves you freed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's yeah. a really funny thing where they think I'm saying pizza. Yeah. Hold um, <laughs> my pizza. Um, right, right. <laughs> yeah, the Misa. Exactly. Because what that does, especially looking back on it now, it kind of was the real beginning of this turn. And I think it was the real beginning of people being like, oh, I'm going to back this one. Like, let's mm-hmm. go with Daenerys. Yeah, right. Let's do exactly. that one. She's going to win. <laughs> yeah. So I think that was just really liberating and exciting. And like, just everything felt good. Everything, like the motors were all running and it was just good to go. The other thing, actually, one of my favorite, favorite bits was the first scene I have with Tyrion. Mm-hmm. When I first meet him, mm-hmm. that's pretty beautiful. And right. just Peter's just the best. Yeah. He's just incredible. So working with him is just a dream. So many to pick from. So no, and so then I mean I could go on for absolute ages. That's right. definitely that's definitely it. Yeah. But yeah, my God, what's coming up? I mean, pff, yep, that just... answer could still change. Yeah, it's really. Uh, you're struggling to keep it in. I can just... see. Well, if you if we can help you to alleviate. No, I won't. No, but, I won't. I um, just want to let you know it's gonna be good. <laughs> well, so that that leads into the second to last one. Like, mm-hmm. how long have you known where this is gonna end? How this is gonna end? I don't know that I even do now. In the I'm middle being of serious. shooting this season, so these are six episodes of the final season, which comes out in 2019. You're saying in the middle of doing it. I think they're filming a bunch of stuff and they're not telling us. Being serious and being deadly serious. I think that they don't even trust us. So you don't know who ends up on the throne? No. I don't even know. I read what I read last year. I've read those scripts. Holy moly. Took me a couple of hours to come down from that. That was like the most intense but you did not reading read the experience last of my life. Episode. I did. And since then, you just, people are saying something on set and you're just like, I think that they're filming other stuff and everyone's being really cagey about it. Maybe they and then there's a lot of like, wait, why are you, what are you, wait a <laughs> second. Because there's lots of different, they, there's lots of different endings that could happen that I think that we're all, to have, we're all doing all of them and we aren't being told which is actually what's going to oh happen. Well, the last question is just, you know, that day is going to come, it sounds like, pretty soon from now where you're going to shoot yeah. your last scenes on this show. Yeah, exactly. Um, so out of order with, you know, like, right. you just end up shooting what you... Right. Like, my last scene on a bunch of movies has been like a close-up of my hand. Right. You know what I mean? You're like, oh, okay. That's <laughs> but that, great. like, begs the question, how do you imagine you will feel on that day? And also, what do you think, like, how does somebody follow Game of Thrones? What's the next chapter? <laughs> God, exactly. 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 <laughs> You just spoke my 3 a.m. thoughts, people. (laughs) (laughs) I wake up in the middle of the night. I truly get really emotional just even even thinking about the end of the show because I was talking to someone about this recently and what you're leaving behind, it's like leaving home 
for the first time because what you're leaving behind is you're le- you're you're moving into this really exciting unknown territory of like who knows who knows the excitement and the the joys that could happen all the pitfalls hence my fatality about <laughs> you know what happens what happens right. but what you're leaving behind is everything that has happened to me in my 20s. Mm-hmm. Ten years of my life was woven within the show. You know, there's so much that's happened to all of us and you're walking away from that. And so there's a huge amount of like real life, like real, real life stuff that I'm leaving there. And so it's incredibly, incredibly emotional. And Daenerys is so much a part of who I am mm-hmm. and I'm so much a part of who she is. And so it's this incredibly (laughs) frightening thing to walk away from but at the same time unbelievably exciting yeah well thank you so much for doing this i really appreciate it no worries thanks for asking me questions thank you Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.